I don't have any magnets. Um, familiar text, as Kevin mentioned, uh, today is Epiphany Sunday, and we are uh, going to look at the story of uh, the three uh, wise men uh, coming uh, and worshiping Jesus. Um, let me read to you Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The text is in the bulletin, also uh, up on the screens uh, behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So last night, uh, I went to a party. Uh, and uh, it was a loud party. It was an overwhelmingly loud party and overwhelming noise, noise, noise. Uh, I, I felt like I was back in my college days. Uh, this party was in a part of town called Scott's Edition. Now, um, some of you of a certain age don't know anything about that, and then some of you, probably lived there of a certain age, right? Scott's Edition, when we first moved to Richmond uh, in the 80s, Scott's Edition was an industrial place. Uh, and now it uh, looks like it's just a giant party. Uh, uh, breweries, uh, cideries, restaurants, apartments, uh, grocery stores that are trying hard not to look like grocery stores, you know, um, <laughs> you know, and so I'm walking down the street, and there's all these people all over the place. It's hard to get a parking space. Uh, everybody's beautiful. Everybody's young and exciting. And I'm going by all these places, and you just look, and you're like, you know, that's where all the cool kids are. And I felt excluded. <laughs> um, I was not, uh, yeah, I, I just felt like an outsider. Like, look at all these beautiful well-to-do, put-together, people having a great time, and look at me, old guy, bald, walking down the street, uh, on the outside looking in, right? Uh, but, you know, I can turn any negative into a positive because I immediately decided, well, I'm better than them. They're not excluding me. I'm actually excluding them. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, then I felt better about myself, and the night looked up after that. But um, 
At, at some point in time, at some point in time in your life, uh, you've been excluded, right? Whether it was the cool kids table at middle school where, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't sit there or if you did, they ignored you or, uh, told you to leave or whatever. At some point, you've, you've been excluded. It's terrible, right? It's, uh, we don't really like to be excluded. And I know that, uh, there are many parents in this congregation who are terrified that their kids will get excluded. And so they work really hard to make sure that their kids don't get excluded, which ends up making sure that their kids get excluded. So um, so it's a big thing, right? Well, one of the things that is gross, we, we have become so familiar with is that the vast majority of us in this room were once excluded from the gospel, from the very people of God. Now, we don't think about that very much. You know, there's, uh, if, and, and, that we, the vast majority of us, only a handful of us in here, uh, are, are not Gentiles. We're a Gentile church largely, right? Just like the New Testament. But we don't, now maybe it makes you uncomfortable that I'm using the word Gentile. It's in the Bible. Um, so, uh, that's what you are. That's what most of us are. I'm a Gentile, okay? I'm not insulting anybody by, by, by saying this right. So, so the, so the fact is, as Paul writes there in Ephesians, it is a big thing. It was a, a, a unique thing that, and, and that was so clear and was clarified with the coming of Christ that the kingdom of God was not just for one race of people or, or one ethnic group of people, but that it was for the whole world. And that all people, uh, regardless of uh, background, regardless of uh, their uh, uh, who their ancestors were or uh, what their race was or anything like that, none of that mattered. In fact, Jesus came. Part of the, the, the thing that Jesus did is he breaks down all those barriers. And so we are very familiar with the story of the three wise men, but it is a shocking thing in many ways that some of the first people that we see actually worshiping Jesus, seeing him for who he is, actually engaging with him are are, are not his own people. Uh, They're these three wise men that came from the east, probably, ironically, from what is now the nation of Iran. How ironic, right? That is probably where they came from. And so... Uh, and, and it's also interesting, if you know anything at all about the, the, the Gospels, we know that, that you know, biblical scholars will tell you that Matthew's Gospel is the most Jewish of the Gospels. How, but it's ironic that he includes this story at the very beginning of the Gospel, and he ends his Gospel by saying the Great Commission, go you into all the world, disciple all the nations, Right? And so, so it's important for us to see here that what Matthew is communicating to us, what God really is communicating uh, to us through these magi, these, these, these uh, three wise men coming to see Jesus is, is that the gospel is not just for one group of people, but it's for everybody. And if that's the case, then all the barriers that we tend to, to raise, all the, the, the racial barriers, the, eth- uh, the ethnic barriers, the socioeconomic barriers, whatever, whatever those things are, Jesus destroys all those uh, by coming and establishing a kingdom under his kingship for all people. We're united in that, right? So, so this is, this is something that is, is pretty profound. So we, we're used to this. We, we, we probably don't think of the uniqueness or the, uh, the power of what it meant, 
uh, in the first century that now the, the work of God wasn't just for one group of people, but was really for the whole world. And that's what this story indicates to us. And this is what, this is what, uh, uh, God is doing by including these wise men, uh, from the East, uh, uh, in, uh, the story of Jesus' birth. So it's just, you know, we, we could probably just stop right there in many ways because you should be dumbfounded today that you're here. You should be dumbfounded today that you're included. You should be, you know, it, it is, it's, uh, it's a shocking thing that God loved me enough to graft me in to his people. That's a stunning thing. And so this story helps us kind of to, to, to unpack that and, and, and wrap our brains around that just a little bit. So, um, you know, you're, you're with the coolest of kids now. <laughs> uh, you know, Jesus invites you to his table and he makes a way for you to belong. That's great news. That's, that's a, that, and that's what we see here. And that's the, the major thrust of what's going on. Uh, with these, uh, with these wise men. So let's, let's look at, uh, pick up a couple of more notes about the story to kind of, uh, flesh this out for us a little bit more. So one of the things you probably have just put away your nativity set at, at home, right? Maybe you have. Um, and it probably had shepherds and wise men in it, right? Never happened. You know that? They weren't, they weren't there at the same time. Okay? Um, just not, and, and they probably had three wise men. We don't know how many there were. The scriptures just say wise men. They brought three gifts. So more than one. But we don't know, we don't know how many it was, but it's cute that they have three. Uh, and they're usually easy to pick out because they're dressed better than everybody else in the, in the, in the, in the, in the nativity set, right? One of the ways that we know that, the, that, that some time has elapsed is the word that's used here uh, in verse 11 where it says they found the child with his mother in the house, right? Uh, so they're living in a house, uh, and the word for child is not baby, right? Uh, and we know uh, that, you know, Herod asked the wise men, when did you first see the star? Uh, and it was probably a couple of years. So Jesus is no longer tiny, uh, but he is a child, right? When they, uh, when they go, when they go to see him. Um, the other thing to note is, is what exactly is this phenomenon, uh, that's going on in the sky with the star? And how does it work that the star kind of leads them and, and the star is like right over Bethlehem, right? You, you see that on, you know, the, the Christmas specials all the time. I don't, I don't, the way it's displayed, I don't know if that's really the way it was. Uh, nobody really knows exactly how this worked. Uh, we know that there were, uh, there are other cultures that, uh, during the first, uh, um, uh, century, um, those first few years talked about the fact that there was, you know, something going on in the sky. And so as we, we could speculate about that, we could do all sorts of things about it. And certainly, you know, we like to think about Jesus coming as the light of the, uh, coming into the world as the light of the world. And that, you know, that may, you know, if that helps you, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, but what really is going on here is God is saying he is bending nature and using nature and shaping it 
to display his glory and to draw attention to the fact that his son is coming into the world and that it is a worldwide thing, that the phenomenon of this, what's happening in the sky is not just for a handful of people to see, but for the whole world to see, right? And so it's a, it's a pretty, and it's an interesting thing as we, as we look at the way the story works is that God is displaying his glory in the whole of the world through the universe, through the planets, through the stars. Uh, and yet here we have these people in Jerusalem who don't really have a clue about what's going on right in their own backyard. Uh, we note that the kings bring treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, uh, you know, people, the thing to conclude from that is not uh, that, that these gifts are not so, they don't have spiritual significance in the sense that this represents this, this represents this, this represents this. We People talk about that, right? Gold is for a king, frankincense is for worship, and myrrh is for burial, right? Isn't that what the tradition is on that? I don't, you know. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, they're expensive gifts. That's what we need to know. They're treasures, right? And that the, the wise men uh, brought things that cost a lot of money uh, to, uh, to, to worship. Now, the other thing that we note about this is, one of the things that's, is that they go to Herod and they say, who is he? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Now, that, obviously, Herod thinks he's the king of the Jews, but Herod, it's, it's really interesting to see how he responds to this. Because they, what, what they say is they want to go see the, he who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So that, 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 that's a unique kind of king, right? Uh, probably uh, in America right now, there are probably three or four people who have been born in recent history who will be president someday, right? I, I, I hope so. I think I think that's probably that's probably true, right? Uh, and uh, we don't have any stars shining over them uh, that we know of, and we certainly aren't going to go worship them, right? I hope not. I hope you don't worship any president ever. Uh, please don't. Uh, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, this is a unique kind of king, uh, and Herod recognizes that. Because Herod doesn't go to the priests and the scribes and say, uh, who, you know, where's, where's the king going to be born? He says, where's the Messiah going to be born? He assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Messiah, the Christ, was to be born. So, so Herod's smart enough to know that something's going on here that is a threat to him and that is going to disrupt and overturn uh, his kingdom, right? And so um, this is a unique situation. It's just not a king. It's not just a political event, that this is a spiritual event, that God is actually coming in the flesh, that the longed-for, promised uh prophesied Messiah is coming into the world uh, and he's going to disrupt things, right? Uh, Jesus is a disruptor. You know, we, we live in an age, I think, of uh, where I think we're really on the front end of an age of disruption uh, in our world where things are, you know, they're not running the way they used to, right? And so, so suddenly what's happening here with Jesus is he's going to overturn uh, convention. He's going to overturn uh, the typical way people think about themselves. He's going to overturn the way the Jewish people think about themselves. He's going to overturn the way the Gentiles think about themselves. He's he's about to bring a lot of disruption. And so Herod realizes that. 
He understands that it's the Messiah, and as a result of that, he's concerned, right? Next slide. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that he would ask where the Messiah is going to be born. He assembles the, the priests and the scribes, and he asks them. Now, here's one of the problems with that, and one of the things that is so interesting about the scribes and the religious leaders that are there in Jerusalem. Do you know how far Jerusalem is from Bethlehem? Five miles. This is happening in their backyard. You could, you know, a good stretch of the leg, right? You could, you could get up, eat your breakfast, and walk to Bethlehem before lunch. Uh, you could walk to Bethlehem and back before lunch, right? So, so the, here it is. The Messiah is coming into the world. Uh, there's a star. Uh, it's happening right in their backyard, and they have no interest. They can tell you, hey, this is what the Bible says. It says he's in Bethlehem, which is just over there. But am I going to go? No, I'm not going to go. I don't want to be bothered by that. It's the Messiah. Big deal. Maybe. I don't know. It's, it's really, it's, it's really quite interesting, right? So, so on the one hand, people are disturbed. They're talking about it. Herod's certainly threatened by it. He's going to go do something about it here shortly when he figures out where, uh, Jesus is. He's going to go and, and try to, to, to wipe him out to kill all those, uh, baby boys that are there in Bethlehem. But the fact is, uh, the religious leaders have very little interest. And this is one of the things that I think is worth uh, thinking about, right? Typically, when we proclaim the gospel, uh, even whether we proclaim it to ourselves uh, or to others, something typically happens. One is where you typically, sometimes we're unmoved by it. Uh, it does not affect us. We don't find it that interesting. We've grown tired of it, and we just kind of take it for granted. But there are occasions where the proclamation of the gospel disturbs people and, and, and makes people angry and uh, gets people disrupted and upset. Um, it's always been that way. And in fact, uh, I like the fact that Herod is upset better than the, the disinterest of the, uh, of the scribes and the priests. Because Jesus, is, if, if he is who he said he was, and if he did what the Bible tells us he did, then you should be disrupted. You should be disturbed. Uh, you should come, come to, have to come to grips with the fact that as we say when we read the question and answer to the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, the first one, I'm not my own. Someone else is in charge. I am accountable. There is a God who has come in the flesh, lived my life, died my death, rose again, and he's the Lord. He's the king. And if that's true, then I'm accountable to him. And if I'm accountable to him, then that means I have to listen to him. I need to submit to him. I need to believe him. I need to obey him. That he's done all these things for me and that I belong to him. Right? And so it's no wonder that people are like, well, I don't want to belong to him. I want to belong to myself. I, you know, it, it, it's, it's a remarkable thing for us to, to, we, we kind of grow I don't know, cold to the fact that this God loved us enough to do this, to come into our lives, to disrupt things, to change things, to reorient us, uh, to love us, right? So uh, we shouldn't be surprised that whenever there's a the, the gospel goes forth, that there will be disinterest. 
But we should also not be surprised when the gospel goes forth and there's resistance and anger and disgust because it's always, it's always been like that. Um, so one of the things that you, that as we think about this, it's ironic that Jesus' own people are either disinterested or angry that he's come. But the Gentiles, the three magi, the whatever how many magi there were, uh, they are enamored with Jesus. And it says that when they go and find him, they fall on the floor, they give him their gifts, and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Does that sentence grab you? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When was the last time you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy? About anything. When was the last time you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy over the fact that Jesus Christ knows you, loves you, and is for you? Um, One of the things that I realized in the last year or so, both my parents died in in the last two years, and um, one of the things that happens to you when your parents die is all, all sorts of things happen. But one of the things that happened to me was, Suddenly I realized this is going to happen to me someday. <laughs> you would think a pastor would know that he's going to die, but I don't think I really did. And, and I can laugh at it because, but when you see them, you're like, wow, you know, they're dead and probably someday I'll be dead. Hmm. And funny how that works because things start happening to you that the Lord brings into your life to kind of remind you of that. Like, I used to get up and run 10 or 15 miles, and I would be sore the next day. Now, I walk to the mailbox, <laughs> and my hip hurts. <laughs> like, that, those are little reminders to me of mortality. Did you know that getting older is a risk factor for death? Did you know that? Who knew? I thought you were supposed to to get older, but actually getting older is a bad thing because it means you might die. How crazy is that, right? So living is actually a risk factor. Who knew? So I guess you don't have risk factors if you're already dead, right? So one of the things, what I've realized about myself is stuff hurts that didn't used to hurt. And I don't like that. And I've let that rob my joy. Uh, I, so one of the things that I've started doing is when I get to the, to the office, I uh, <clears throat> close my door. And to help me with that, I have, uh, want to spend a couple of minutes every morning um, thinking about what has Jesus done for me that gives me joy? Now, that is really simple and probably beneath the spiritual giants who worship here with me, right? 
Um, but one of the things that I recognize about myself is, is the gospel true? Did, was Jesus really born? Did he really live? Did he really die? Did he really rise again? Is he calling me to himself? Is he going to return someday in glory and uh, establish his rule and his kingdom across this whole universe? Are those things true or not? Because if they're true, if he is who he says he is, and he did what the scriptures tell me he did, then there's reason for joy on the worst day when my knee hurts, my hip hurts. I don't feel that great. See, th- that's the thing. That's the thing that is, is, is so profound for us as we look at this, that these three wise men, they, this is what they've been looking for. And when they, when they find the Christ, when they find the Messiah, they're overcome with worship. Certainly they fall down before him. They give him precious gifts. But internally what's happening to them is they're overwhelmed with joy because the hopes, the joys, the fears, all of those things that make human life what it is, there, there, there's Jesus who overcomes all of that, who is the source of all of that for us. So if that's true, uh, then, then one of the things that must be true about me is that at least at some level and at some time in time and space in my life, joy should be a part of my experience. We almost look at it as, you know, we kind of take it almost as, um, well, people that have joy, we kind of look at them and think, what's wrong with them, right? But yet here we see these men gathering before Jesus, seeing him and being overcome by joy. Last thing, they give expensive gifts. Uh, people who are overcome with joy uh, uh, in, in Christ and they see him for who he is are generous, right? Um, and uh, I, we don't... Uh, we don't talk about this very much uh, at West End. Uh, we don't talk about money a lot. We, you know, uh, probably to our shame. Um, but I do want to say uh, the work of uh, last month, <clears throat> the month of December, God was at work in this congregation to make you particularly generous because offerings were the highest ever by remarkable magnitudes. Now, I know, as I say that, I can look into your faces and the wheels are turning. Why is that? It's the new tax law. It's this. It's that. Right? I don't want to hear it. (laughs) You know what? Keep that to yourself. Uh, Because uh, whatever whatever it is, uh, I'm grateful and I see it as a work of God in the heart and lives of his people. Um, and an evidence that he is alive among us. And I think we should be glad about that. I think we should, you know, that should uh, encourage our hearts and uh, stimulate us even to further generosity, right? I mean, that's the thing about these, what the, what these uh, <clears throat> kings are doing, these wise men are doing is they're giving sacrificially in joy and recognizing uh uh, who Jesus is and what it is that he has come to do for them. And so I, I think we should give God a lot of glory uh, that he has been at work uh, in uh, and through us to lavish, lavish, not just grace, certainly, not just mercy, certainly, but resources uh, to do uh, what he's called us to do.
God's good. Hear these words of institution of the Lord's Supper. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. They did as he had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's use this prayer of confession uh, from uh, 1 John. It's printed in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Pray with me. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The scriptures tell us on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. So we used a pretty big word. In that prayer, propitiation, word you probably use at your house all the time, right? <laughs> right? Are we having propitiation for dinner tonight, right? You probably use, probably use that word a lot. Maybe you know what it is. Maybe, maybe you don't. Propitiation is, uh, is a, a word that means Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our, our sin that turns away God's righteous wrath and anger against sin that he absorbs that into himself. Uh, he That's what his sacrifice does for us. And so one of the things that is so profound about that, and one of the things that is so rich uh, about the gospel is, is that, as we'll sing in a few minutes, uh, the wrath of God is exhausted on Jesus Christ for us, right? The judgment, the punishment uh, that is due our sin uh, is meted out, on Christ. That's a source of joy. You know, that Jesus would love us enough uh, to become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
And that's what we proclaim when we take this bread and we take this cup, is that we're sinners, that we sin, that we uh, have an independent streak where we would rather not have Jesus sometimes be Lord of our lives. And yet he continues to pursue us. He continues to love us. And he continues to call on us to confess our sins, to be reminded of his grace and his mercy, and to be renewed, restored, and turned to him. Um, If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other hope except in the work of Christ for you, that he uh, is the atoning sacrifice for your sins, you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere, he invites you, he wants you to come to taste and see his goodness this morning. Uh, that he is for you, that he is with you, uh, and that uh, not only does he forgive you, but he clothes you in his righteousness. Um, he loves you that much. Uh, as the elders uh, come down front uh, this morning to assist me, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice, and all the bread uh, is bread that is gluten-free.